Thank you, Tim, for that prayer supplication. And before you put your uh, worship guides aside, and uh, I want to direct your attention back to your prayer list. Didn't have an opportunity to get to Tim before the service just to remind him to ask you to be praying for Sister Retha Steed. Sister Retha fell uh, night before last and uh, fractured her hip. Uh, underwent surgery late yesterday afternoon. Uh, came through the surgery uh, as of last night fine. Uh, and probably is a, in a general room right now. And so I know that uh, her family would appreciate and she would appreciate knowing that you're praying for her as she goes through recovery and then rehab. And, uh, and Rita loves Cornerstone and I always enjoy visiting with her and catching her up on things. And she's always glad to hear how God is blessing here. And then if you, while you have your prayer list, also I didn't get a chance to tell Tim before the service, uh, if you'll add the name under friends and family of Lori, L-O-R-I, Lori Comer. You heard us talking about Char Charlie Dietz and the wonderful way God's working in his life. This is Charlie's mother. She has undergone surgery and is now recovering from surgery. She has visited here a number of times at Cornerstone. And I know she would appreciate your prayers for her. And so, and while we're at we have a delegation from the church that will be going down Thursday to Samaritan's Purse. Is that right, Wendy, Thursday? Uh, about six of them, I guess, something like that. They're going to be helping to put the finishing touches on getting those Christmas uh, child shoeboxes off and on their way. And so uh, I really appreciate the desire of these ladies uh, to, to do God's work, representing the, the Lord's kingdom first and foremost, but also representing Cornerstone. So, uh Thank you, Wendy, and the group that's going with you. So praise the Lord. I'll ask, if you will, please to turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, as we continue in a series that I've simply entitled, Follow Me, just as a reminder that that's the essence of the Christian call. Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If you want to evaluate your life as a Christian, I would simply ask yourself, how much of my daily life do I consciously give to thinking about following the Lord? The Lord. Are you following him in your family relationships? Are you following him in your daily routine? Are you following him as you move about on your job or at school? Are you following the Lord, consciously aware that he's doing the leading, you're doing the following? So if you're following the Lord, then you're consciously thinking, what would Jesus be doing? What would he be saying? Who would he be encountering? How would he be responding? How would he be performing? On and on and on. The Lord is interested in every aspect of our lives. Just because we choose to follow the Lord doesn't mean we go off to some distant monastery and shut ourselves off from the world. No, he goes with you anywhere. We, we just had proof. I don't want to keep harping on Brother Charlie Dietz, but my goodness, the Lord's followed him right on into the prison there. And look, at, look how he's got him on fire. So are you following the Lord? Are you consciously, daily following Jesus? You know, as we'll, we'll pick up there in, in verse 31, because Jesus has been preaching a series of sermons, messages, teachings uh, on his way, ultimately to Jerusalem, ultimately to the cross, ultimately to a grave. But Jesus is on his way ultimately to Jerusalem. But along the way, Jesus is moving throughout the area of Judea. He's already done his work up in the northern regions of Israel and Galilee and down in the southern kingdom, if you will, it's part of the kingdom. But he's even crossed over the Jordan River to the east side, to a region called Perea, still under that area. He's preaching and teaching, working miracles over there. So that's physically, geographically where you could kind of plot him if you have a Bible with, map, uh, with, with maps, then you could see that on your Bible maps. Uh, I'm not smart enough and technically gifted enough to project something up there. Uh, but anyway, you can use your, your mind, your imagination, or you can use your Bible maps. But you know, one of the many ironies of the life and the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ is the fact that never has there been a more compassionate, an unselfish, caring, and benevolent, 
and wise and peaceful, sinless and perfect person on earth than God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Never, never will be. He is a perfect God man. He unselfishly came into the world to extend the mercy and the grace of almighty God to reveal the glorious kingdom of God and to authenticate that. He performed many wonderful miracles. He, he allowed people to be, to be healed from what were then incurable diseases. He authenticated his claims by freeing people from the hideous manifestations of the curse of sin. That's how Jesus demonstrated he was who he said he was, was he was, he was countering those things that have ad adversely affected mankind, such as diseases. He was curing people, freeing them from the terrible you know, limitations of these diseases and, and, and physical limitations. He was also freeing people from demonic possession. You imagine living a life controlled by an evil demon spirit. Yet Jesus came on the scene and did the unthinkable. He was setting people free. All of these manifestations of the curse of sin. Not only that, on a few occasions, Jesus even freed a few people from the bondage of a grave as he raised them from the dead. So you see, Jesus didn't come making empty claims about himself. What a, what a perfect person he was. What a gift to the world he was. Yet, you know, and I know that as he went on with his life, the world didn't respond in kind to him. As Dr. John MacArthur stated in his commentary on this very thing, he said, ironically, the one who called for the very best in people brought out the very worst in people. And yet, as we see in the text this morning, our Lord Jesus, praise his name, he would not be deterred from his divine mission. No, no matter what the response of peoples were to him, Jesus was absolutely determined to fulfill the mission to which God had sent. I don't know about you. Sometimes you go to help somebody, be kind to them. They're all up in your face and belligerent, you know, cursing you and, you know, and, 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 and acting un, you know, ungrateful. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing back from my social work days. When I go in to you know, represent the government, the, the county government to bring you know, resources and opportunities. And man, sometimes people are so nasty and so ungrateful. And so you think, why am I bothered? <laughs> I'm so glad that, that Jesus didn't have that at that frame of mind. In fact, the first thing I want you to see as we begin looking there at chapter 13, verse 31, is the Lord's commitment to his mission. The Lord's commitment to his mission. You see, it was no secret to Jesus that the people weren't going to be glowingly receptive of him when he first showed up on the scene. He knew long before John wrote it in his prologue to his gospel in chapter 1, verse 11, when John said he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So Jesus wasn't caught off guard. He knew. Oh, listen, as Jesus embarked upon his endeavors, to fulfill the mission that the Father had given him to, to bring a, a word of, of redemption to lost, hopeless humanity. In fact, not just to bring a word, but to give his life, to pay the price for people's sins. Listen, he was constantly under attack. Consider the enemy's futile, and I emphasize futile, attempts to stop our Lord. Pagan rulers, they would try to hinder him the best they could. I mean, starting from the very get-go. In Matthew chapter 2, we know as soon as Jesus was born and was on the scene as a young child, we see an insanely jealous and paranoid king by the name of Herod the Great issued a murderous and insanely decree or command that all the little boys, two years old and under, would be brutally killed. In his vain attempt to try to kill the Son of God, the, 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 the promised Messiah, the the king of the Jews who had just been born. As we know, that didn't stop him. In our text today, we'll be introduced to King Herod's son, Herod Antipas. He was no better. He was an openly wicked ruler over uh, a certain portion of the Roman Empire there. 
in, in the region of Galilee and in the region where Jesus is teaching right now in, in this text, in, in the region of Perea, was under Herod Antipas. And Antipas was an openly wicked you know, ruler. He reportedly was plotting Jesus' death, and we'll see that in the text. In fact, take a look there with me in verse 31. On that very day, in other words, as Jesus is there in Perea, as he is teaching and preaching, on, on that very day, not the day after, not two days later, not a week later, but right then and there, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. This shouldn't surprise anybody that might have been familiar with King Herod, if you will, because he was wicked. He certainly didn't like Jesus. And you may recall he was the very one that had already ordered the beheading of Jesus's forerunner, John the Baptist. This is the Herod. And now he's threatening to kill Jesus. You know, some scholars have speculated, why, why of all people would the Pharisees warn Jesus? I mean, you would think as much as they and the scribes and the Sadducees hated Jesus, they would, be, they would say, just sit back and say, okay, let, let Herod kill him. But you know, not all of the Pharisees were bad guys. I know I lump them into one group, but let's not forget a man by the name of Nicodemus who had a liking to Jesus. And so, you know, there were, so some scholars say that was a small group of Pharisees who genuinely were concerned about Jesus and didn't want him to fall into the ruthless hands of Herod the Great, or not Herod the Great, but Herod Antipas of all people. But then, then there are some were saying, no, no, that's, that's too gracious. That the, the Pharisees that came to Jesus here, they, were, they had a plot. Because you see, Jesus was in the region of uh, uh, Galilee and Perea on the eastern side of the Jordan River. He was actually out of the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin. If they could scare Jesus, you got to get out of here. You got to go back over on the other side of the river because Herod wants to kill you. You'll be out of his territory. You'll be out of his jurisdiction. So come on back over on the west side of the Jordan River where, by the way, we have jurisdiction and we can have you arrested and killed. So I don't know. Yeah, just food for thought. But the fact is, we know that Herod, according to these Pharisees, was indeed attending to plotting to kill Jesus. But then there were the Jewish religious leaders. I've already made reference to them, the, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees and that crowd. They made no bone about the fact they, they did not like Jesus. They, they resented highly his public attacks upon their system of religion. It was superficial, self-aggrandizing, and, you know, and it was false. And Jesus made no bone about exposing them for who they were. So naturally, he would be the one they would want to target. And they not only were constantly plotting to kill Jesus, folks, they, they attempted to kill Jesus. They had stones ready to stone him. So don't just think it was something that was superficially in their mind. My goodness, on and on and on. Earlier in, in Luke's gospel in chapter four, you recall when Jesus went home, not to heaven, but to where, where he grew up, the little town of Nazareth up in, in Galilee. You recall there in Luke's gospel chap, chapter four, verse 28 through 30, after Jesus was in, teaching in the synagogue and Jesus revealed that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah, that he was a, the Messiah. They're looking around at each other and said, wait a minute, that's Joseph and Mary's boy. How dare he claim in the synagogue that he's the son of God, the Messiah. And so they, they quickly, as a riotous mob, grabbed him up, rushed him out of the synagogue up to the tallest hill and ready to throw him over to kill him. You remember that? I know it's been a few chapters back and probably a few months back. His own townspeople. Well, that didn't deter the Lord. You see, bombarded day after day, constantly attack after attack to dissuade him, to discourage him, to distract him from fulfilling the mission that the Father had sent him on. Oh, but heaven. Covered all the adversaries yet, have I? <laughs> Let's not leave, leave, leave out the number one adversary, Satan himself. I mean, if you were to go back to Luke's gospel there in chapter four, just after Jesus was inaugurated in his public ministry, 
He was led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tested. And tempted by Satan himself. Satan tempted Jesus to dissuade him from proceeding with his divine mission of redemption. And he too failed. Because our Lord was absolutely committed to carry out the, the plan and the mission that had been devised in the minds, the divine minds of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit before the dawning of history. He was determined to carry out this plan to redeem lost humanity from the awful eternal penalty of sin. There's a lesson here for you and me as we consider the mission that God has given us. We can take a few lessons from our Lord as we watch him and how absolutely committed he was to his mission. I would ask you collectively as a church, and I'll ask you individually as individual Christians, how committed are you to fulfill the mission to which God has called you? Us as a church, but you individually as a Christian. We all have a mission. We know it as the Great Commission. For Jesus said, you know, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. Who's he talking to? He's talking to every believer who truly chooses to follow Christ by faith. Every born again believer. His apostles originally, but then after that, every person that professed faith in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. The enemy certainly was relentless in his attack and attempt to discourage the Lord to keep him from being committed to his mission. That same enemy is at work in our lives today. And knowing that, I would ask you again, how committed are you? How determined are you? Are you as doggedly determined to fulfill God's plan in your life as Jesus, the Son of God, was in fulfilling the plan that God had given to him? Listen, we think about the enemy's relentless attacks on us and his efforts to stop the church in its mission. Let me tell you something. His devious attempts to disrupt our fellowship with the Lord by tempting God's people to sin. Anybody here ever been tempted to sin? <laughs> you're the very bashful you lie. All of us have. If you breathe, listen, from the time you think as a child, yes, we are. We know that, that sin is, is a deterrent to our fellowship with our God, with our Lord. It disrupts our relationship with the Lord. It grieves the Spirit of God. It quenches the Spirit of God. And so rather than raise your white flag and throw up your hands in the face of sin, I just encourage you to turn to the promises of the word of God, like we have in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where Paul says to Christians, no temptation is overtaken you except that which is common with man. But God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape that you may bear it. So, we are, yeah, we're all tempted to sin and sin can disrupt our relationship with the Lord. Sin, unrepentant sin can disrupt not only the relationship of the individual Christian with the father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But let me tell you something. Unrepented sin tolerated in the church will also disrupt the fellowship that that body has with God. And that's another. That's one of the ways that Satan attempts to, to discourage the church, to distract the church, to hinder the church from fulfilling its mission. And if we're not absolutely committed, laser-minded, focused on Christ, we could be discouraged we could be be distracted we could be led off in another way but satan's clever our enemy is is very shrewd look at the the, the vast number the plethora of false world religions and unbiblical cults that he has very cleverly crafted to twist the truth and snare and condemn to hell unsuspecting followers oh they're out there folks you can just throw a rock and you can hit one they're out there. They're looking for people who are not grounded in the word of God, who are not solid in their faith and convictions to the Lord. They'll understand truly the teachings of the scriptures. And listen, they, they'll use just enough of the word of God to cause you to say, oh, that, that sounds good. That must be a Christian organization. A young lady that I love dearly called Jan and I and said, you, I, she lives in an apartment complex. And uh, well, shucks, my granddaughter. 
I'm proud of the fact that she at least called us and said, you know, I got a letter from one of my neighbors and it was so nice. And they were using scripture and they were talking about all these wonderful things and how they, you know, were praying for her and all that. And, and, uh, and she said, I, you know, I, I think I'd like to get to know them. And I said, well, just, you know, what else does this letter tell you, honey? And she gave me the, gave us the uh, uh, email, not email, but the uh, website. And uh, there's Jehovah's Witnesses. And I said, honey, drop that like a hot coal. You run from it. Listen, John said, and listen, that's how they do it. The enemy is clever. He's cunning. He knows how to draw unsuspecting people away from the Lord and towards Satan's agenda. John knew that to be a problem early in the church in 1 John. Go back and just read through 1 John all together. But he said in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many, when John says many, he means many false prophets have gone out into the world. Listen, that's first century A.D. We're 21st century A.D. How many other cults do you think have arisen since John right in there? How many other false teachers do you think have been out there on the scene? How many other false religious systems do you think have been spawned by Satan? And they're out there to deter us from fulfilling the mission that God has given to us. Sadly, churches are straying from biblical Christianity to go after any fad and any new trend that might appeal to people. Not so concerned about does it glorify God, but does it appeal to people? Oh, God, help them. You know, distractions and temptations from the flesh and the world are designed to lure the church from its God-given mission, and that is to make disciples of all the nations, to live our lives as godly people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood before the Lord as he watches us. Satan will do his best. Our adversary is empowering evil, intimidating forces to discourage Christians from standing firm on the word of God. Folks, it's real. You and I, those of us in my generation particularly, we have known what it means to have the favor of the society in which we live. You tell people, when I was growing up, you're a Christian, you believe in the Bible, you go to church. Oh, they'll pat you on the head, they'll back and say, good for you, God bless you. That's, we need more like you. You go out there in the streets today, you walk in the mall today, you go into public places today and hold up your, your chin and say, I am a born again, born again believer in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I believe the Bible is the word of God and it's absolutely true. Folks, brace yourself. Brace yourself. You'll find that there's not a climate out there that is conducive to the biblical Christianity to which you and I are committed that spawns the mission that God has called us on. We must be, we must determine that our resolve will be like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go back to our scripture. He's already been warned now. Jesus, you better get out of here. Oh, Herod Antipas, he's got your number and he's plotting to kill you. Get, you better get out of here. What would you have done? Would you be packing your bag? Where, 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 where do you think he's coming from? Where, where, where should I go? You know, I, man, I'm going to shave my beard, cut my hair, change my looks. I love Jesus' response. I know the Bible tells us in Old Testament that you shouldn't deride those who are in leadership, those, in, those who are rulers and, you know, call them names and speak badly of them. But when you're the son of God, when you're the judge of the universe, then I think when Jesus said there in verse 32, and he said to them, go tell that fox. And he's not talking about a good looking woman. He's using fox. Yeah, the Bible speaks of foxes and, and it doesn't speak of them in a very, you know, pleasant way because foxes in the scriptures oftentimes are described as being cunning and wily, sneaky, and sometimes destructive, never really dangerous as far as life-threatening to man, but they're just past. Jesus invests, he's saying, oh, God, go tell that pest, Herod, 
I love that kind of confidence. As if, as if Herod thought in some way he would keep Jesus from doing what he came to do. He said, go tell that pest, that fox. <laughs> Behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today. I, I'm, I'm doing what no other man could possibly do. I've been doing it all these past couple years. He says, I'm, I'm going to be healing, casting out demons. I'm going to be doing it today. Oh, yeah. Tell him I'm going to be doing it tomorrow. And while you had it, tell him that I'll be doing it all the way to the third day when I will be perfected. Jesus was using that expression not as a numerical delineation of time, but he was using that prophetically to say, I will be about my father's business and no one, not even Herod, can deter me, can distract me, can, can discourage me. I will take it all the way to the third day. And folks, you know what the third day represents. It represents the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, after he has been crucified, after he has been buried. He's going to fulfill. Listen, when he stepped out of that grave on Easter Sunday morning, listen, it was fulfilled. And the devil couldn't keep him from doing it. <laughs> the, the townspeople in Nazareth couldn't keep him from doing it. The Pharisees and Sadducees couldn't keep him from doing it. So let me ask you, who can intimidate you to keep you from having that same determined commitment to live your life for the Lord? To be in the word of God on a regular basis, pouring over the word of God, praying over the word of God, letting God's spirit speak to your heart, letting God's Holy Spirit mold you, shape you, make you into the person that God designed you to be from the time that he placed you in your mother's womb. Who is it that is going to deter you, discourage you and distract you from fulfilling that mission, Christian? Cornerstone Baptist, who is going to keep you as a body of believers from fulfilling the Great Commission right here in our part of the world? What will it take? Or will others look at us and say, you know, that bunch of people with all the attacks of the world and the community against them, the forces going against them, they are rock solid. Their things are focused. Nothing is going to keep them from doing the work of God to honor and to glorify God. Wow. As opposed to people looking and saying, oh, yeah, they caved in. <laughs> they, they, they got weak need. They changed their strategy. Oh, yeah. They're just like all the other worldly churches. They're taking the easy path of least resistance. God help us, folks. If that ever becomes our testimony, somebody put padlocks on the doors and close this church down because we have ceased to be the body of Christ. We've lost our focus and we have caved in on our commitment to be who God has called us to be. Well, the commitment of Christ certainly speaks volumes about his mission, but then you can't overlook the rest of this short passage that we have here and what I call our Lord's compassion. For his people. Jesus was determined to fulfill God's redemptive mission to bring lost people to into the kingdom to save those who were wrapped up in the curse of sin. But, but Jesus came to demonstrate God's love. God's love. Not, not just his law. The law without his love is an incomplete gospel. Jesus, in these couple verses, demonstrates in the most beautiful way. The love of God is what motivated Jesus and drove Jesus all the way to the cross, to the grave. And then his resurrection. Listen to this. The same divine heart that beats with commitment to fulfill the Father's will also beats with compassion for the people he would willingly die for. Let me read that one more time. 
the same divine heart that beats with commitment to fulfill the Father's will also beats with compassion for the people he would willingly die for. Have you put your arms around the concept of just how much God loves you? He loves you. He loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's John 3.16. Not a news flash to you. But what's, what does the other John 3.16 say? Sometimes we overlook the other John 3.16. 1 John 3.16, where John, in that epistle, in chapter 3, verse 16, 1 John 3.16, he says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Folks, you're talking commitment here. Jesus Christ was so committed, he went to a rugged cross, the cruelest form of execution known at that time, and suffered. I mean, suffered. Not just physically. If it was just physical, then that's what everybody that was crucified endured. Oh, no. The physical part of the suffering on the cross went far beyond the asphyxiation and the bleeding and the pain and the agony and the dehydration. Oh, no. That was nothing compared to when the skies darkened and the weight of the world's sins began to crush down upon the innocent shoulders of the son of God and he looked towards heaven and said my God my God why have you forsaken me folks that's where the suffering was why why would an innocent man who had all the pleasures and the glories of heaven allow himself to endure such horrible suffering I'll tell you what it could be boiled down to L-O-V-E his heart Richen, lament, express the Father's great compassion in verse 34. After he dealt with this thing with Herod, Jesus turns his attention to Jerusalem. It's not the first time and not the last time. But if you look at verse 34, I'm reading from my translation. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now, you have to understand how Luke is writing to capture the full essence of the emotion of what Jesus is saying. Because just when Jesus uses that expression, oh, it projects strong emotion like, oh, and when he uses repetition, he's, he's speaking with emphasis, putting extra emphasis. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's like when he was warning Peter in Luke uh, 22, 31, 32. He's warning Peter that he was going to be tested by Satan. And he said, Simon, Simon. Sometimes we parents or maybe grandparents chastising our child after they've done something horrendous, you know, or, and you, you get their name and you, you know, I don't think we have anybody here named Susie. Susie, Susie. George, George. You remember when Jesus was in the house of Lazarus and with his sister, Lazarus' sisters, Mary, Mary and Martha? Martha was griping because Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus and she was in there going through the pots and pans and, you know, and cooking and doing all, all the kitchen work. And she was complaining to Jesus, will not you get my sister to get her in here to help me out? And he said, Martha, Martha. You're missing the point. Jesus is looking towards Jerusalem. Now, mind you, he's on the east side of the River Jordan, three miles away from Jerusalem. But he's saying to the people of God, Jerusalem represented the Jews, represented the nation of, of Israel. And he's saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets. And that's true. 
They had a reputation of killing the very prophets that God sent to warn them. And here they were poised to kill the greatest prophet that would ever walk the face of the earth, the son of God. And he's saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Now, don't miss this beautiful analogy. Jesus, you know, talking in terms of a hen and her chicks or eagle and her babies or whatever. Jesus, you know, says, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood. You know, as the little chicks, the little birds under her wings. And you know, growing up on a farm, I saw that to be true. I used to love to go down to my grand, grand, granddaddy and grand, grandma Martin's farm just across the border in Virginia because they had all kinds of animals. And my grandmother raised ducks, geese, chickens. And when the chickens would have biddies, Amy, yours one day, you'll be the proud grandmother of lots of biddies running around. But anyway, <laughs> I was about six, seven years old. I was fascinated. These little biddies, they were so cute. And they were all there for the taking. I mean, they're just you know, running around behind the mother. You know? Back then, we wore a cool strawberry hat and straw hats. They had a sheriff's star on the front. <laughs> that meant you were sheriff. I had this idea. Why don't I just get a whole hat full of these little babies? I mean, they're just all here. So I proceeded to, and, I, and all of a sudden, I saw this transformation come up with a mother hen. She, she was a skinny chicken, and all of a sudden, she puffed out. She looked bigger than an ostrich almost. You know, she was making that weird sound, too, like, you know, and out and, and the little biddies were running up under her wings. Sure enough, she was putting them up, up under her wings. So, you know, I just thought, well, I'll just get them out from under her. Phew, next thing I knew, the sky grew dark. There's big wings over my head. And all of a sudden, the mother hen that landed on my head was pecking everything out of my head. Don't ever try to get biddies from a mother. But Je Jesus uses this beautiful analogy. He says, how often I wanted to just gather your children the most vulnerable of the population under my wings to protect them because you just don't know. Jesus said, I do this because I love you. My compassion. And Jesus was saying this to the very ones who in a very short time would be shouting to Pontius Pilate saying, crucify him, crucify him. What a contrast. What a contrast. So not only do we see the Lord's compassion for his people as he shares his heart rich in lament towards Jerusalem, but folks, as we look at verse 35, the Lord also shares his bone-chilling prophecy. The other time that Jesus would come into Jerusalem, and, and you'll see this when we get to chapter 19, verse 41, Jesus will be coming down off of the, riding down off of the Mount of Olives, getting ready to cross the Kidron Valley. And as he's looked over across the hill on the Mount Zion, there's the glorious, glowing city of David, Jerusalem. And in that rendition, when we get there, Jesus will again say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And it will be one of the most emotional moments in the life of our Savior. But after he has boldly stated, he's driven by the compassion of God, he gives a bone-chilling prophecy. Look at verse 35. See, and it's got an exclamation mark. Jesus is saying, listen, look here. Give me your attention. And he goes on. He says, your house is left to you desolate and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's warning them. You're facing utter destruction. I'll go off the scene when he's resurrected and ascended into heaven. But he says, you'll see me again. You'll see me again. When you would declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those aren't just random words that Jesus was picking out. You see, in his omniscience, he went back and drew out of Psalm 
118, verse 26, those very words by the prophet who was a psalmist who was speaking prophetically of the day of the coming of the Messiah. The God enabled through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for that psalmist to be able to see the day when the Messiah would show up. He would appear on the horizon in all of his power and glory and everybody would be shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Going back to that Luke 19 occasion when Jesus was making what we know as his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As he's weeping profusely over the city of Jerusalem, his disciples, the multitude of disciples that are gathered to escort Jesus in through the city gates and into the temple of God, they're shouting. Oh, they're doing cartwheels. Well, not really, but I mean, they're so excited. They're shouting and singing. And what are they singing? They're singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's this is the day. This is the day we've been dreaming. The Messiah is coming. Oh, he came. He came. But he wasn't coming to rule. He was coming to die. He was coming on that occasion in order that the future occasion that the psalmist was talking about could actually take place. Had Jesus not come into the city of Jerusalem on that day, been arrested and ultimately crucified, there would be no coming promised Messiah that you and I are looking forward to. If you'd like to memorize scripture, I'd suggest you memorize those words. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why? Because one glorious day, whether you're still here on the earth or you're on the heaven side of things with the Lord and he's coming in power and glory and you're coming with him or you're here on the earth and you get raptured and you see him coming. Listen, that's what you're going to show. That's what you're going to say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it won't just be you. It'll be Christians from all over the world, every culture, every tongue, every language, every situation. Listen, young and old, Christians all over that covers the centuries of time. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But we got to go on because Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate. Those are chilling words. This is a bone chilling prophecy. You see, Jesus is speaking as if he could see, as it was present reality, that which has already taken place. When we talk about the destruction of the people of God, we, we think about history, first of all. And Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. There's no limitation to his knowledge. So when he says your house lies in de desolate, then he's looking back in time as far as 722 B.C. When the God enabled the the Assyrian armies to sweep into the northern ten tribes of Israel and to take, and, I mean, just destroy the land, killing millions or, or thousands of people, and then taking the rest all, all the way into captivity and distributing them all, assimilating them all across the globe. They would never come back as an organized people. Jesus thought, as he's telling the people, he saw in his eyes what God allowed to happen. He saw in 586 when, when uh, the Babylonian Empire was enabled to do the same thing with the southern kingdom of Judah. They came and swept in and they besieged the city and many of the residents died of starvation, including the children. They were so hungry, they were eating their children. They were barricaded. And then when the time was right, then they invaded the city and destroyed everything in this glorious city of David. We know as Jerusalem. His sovereign mind enabled him to see clearly what would take place in not in the past. But Jesus, when he said that, your house lies desolate. He saw the past destructions. He saw the future destruction. You see, he saw in 70 AD when the extremely cruel and efficient general Titus brought the massive armies of Rome to the walls of the city of Jerusalem, and they began to besiege the city in AD 70. First century uh, Jewish historian Josephus give, gives us this account. Quote, Caesar gave orders that they should now, de now demolish the entire city and temple, but should leave as many of the towers standing as were of great eminence. In other words, Josephus said when Titus got the order, 
They moved in like a mowing machine. They tore down the walls, broke down every stone, brought away down to the foundation. They went in and destroyed the palaces. They destroyed the homes. They killed people indiscriminately as they went through the streets. They destroyed the temple, set it on fire so that the gold would run down. And, and, and finally, the only thing standing were the towers. Why did they leave the towers? As a bragging symbol to every other civilization that would come along. And they see those massive towers that once adorned the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They would say, my goodness, what kind of an empire can destroy a city as fortified as that? But there you see, they were just trophies. Oh, but let me tell you something. That was just the beginning for the Jewish nation. Jesus could see not only at A.D. 70, but Jesus is looking down through the corridor of time through his omniscient eyes as he says, your house lies desolate. In 439 A.D., Theodius, ruler of the Eastern Roman Empire, declared that the Jews could not have the same legal rights as any other citizens. They were second class citizens. Jesus saw in 630 A.D. when the Byzantine emperor Heraclius declared that Jews were to be banished from Jerusalem. Jesus saw that. He saw what lied ahead for the Jews. Through the Middle Ages and even to the early modern ages, anti-Semitism spread throughout Europe. Jesus saw in the 11th century when Pope Urban II launched truth crusaders down into the Holy Land to free the land from the Muslims. Along the way, these very undisciplined armies turned their vengeance upon European Jews and they were killing them as they regarded them enemies of Christianity and they killed thousands of innocent Jews along the way. Oh, listen, it didn't end there. Jesus saw down through the corridor of time what lie ahead for the nation of Israel who had rejected the Son of God. He says, your house lies desolate even at the turn of the 20th, 20th century. Anti-Semitism reached its feverish pitch in the diabolical minds of Germans, Germany's Chancellor uh, Fuhrer Adolf, Adolf Hitler and in Russia's communist dictator Joseph Stalin, and you know and I know from history that that resulted in the deaths of many millions of Jews. Jesus wasn't talking about just one isolated incident of destruction. He said, this is what you're bringing upon yourself, the wrath of God. And even as early as today in the 21st century, the nation of Israel constantly is in the crosshairs of radical Islamic states like the country of Iran, who have vowed and declared that they will wipe the Jews from the very face of the earth. And it doesn't stop there. Just a week ago, we watched closely as the news reported how a synagogue had been besieged outside of the city of of Fort Worth, Texas, and a deranged Islamic terrorist had taken hostage Jewish worshipers in that synagogue, ready to take their lives to make a political point. When does it end? It will end. It will end one day, folks. It will end. Because the Bible tells us there's coming a time when the Jewish people will recognize that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah. They will turn their hearts to Christ and serve him. They will be a part of the glorious kingdom of God. Jesus was committed. He was committed to the very end. Jesus was compassionate. Do you have anything close to that kind of compassion for people who are lost, unsaved? Are you driven by commitment and are you driven by compassion for those who don't know Jesus Christ? And if they breathe their last breath, will go into an eternal state of judgment, of agony and suffering. We have a mission, folks. We do. It's a glorious mission. It's not one that we should want to shrink from, dread. We should celebrate but understand, God gives a mission. He intends for his people to be faithful to carry it out. I pray to God that I will be, faith, I will be faithful 
in the mission that he's given to me as an individual Christian, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, grandfather. I want to be faithful to the call that he's placed upon my life. I trust that will be the case for every one of you. And then as a church, I, ch- I charge you as a congregation, determined to be as compassionate and committed as Christ in fulfilling the mission that God has given the Cornerstone Baptist Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you speak so clearly to us through passages like this. We thank you for gospel writers like Luke, who wrote under the divine inspiration of the Spirit of God to give us accurately renditions of your earthly ministry here, Lord Jesus, that are intended to guide us in the way we live our lives as Christians and as a church. And I pray, Lord, that you will bless every believer here today with the faith to and that would drive them to be faithful to the, the mission that you've placed upon their lives individually and as a church. Lord, I also want to pray for anyone present or joining us online that has yet to come to that point of commitment. Lord, there's only two kinds of people. Those who are following you, who have made a, a rock-solid commitment to live their life for you, obediently following the teachings of your word, sharing you with those who don't know you and then those who don't who are lost lord i pray i do pray lord if it's your will and we understand you tell us lord jesus that no one comes to you except the father draws them lord our 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 prayer is for those who are unsaved who are lost that you would open their eyes spiritually that lord you would just you would tune up their heart to want to have a desire to come to live for Jesus Christ and to experience forgiveness of their sins and have eternal life and the assurance of a home in heaven. But Lord, we trust that to you. We ha- we humbly ask that you help us to be faithful to share with those who don't know you. Lord, help us on our mission. We cannot complete the mission that you've given us without your holy presence and without your holy word and the power of your Holy Spirit. We depend upon you. We thank you, Lord, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Mark, if you would please come and you can close our service as the Lord so leads you, sir.